The gold bit on your horse, the gold circlet on the wrist of your slave, the gilding on your shoes, mean that you are robbing the orphan and starving the widow. When you have passed away, each passerby who looks upon your great mansion will say, How many tears did it take to build that mansion? How many orphans were stripped? How many widows wronged? How many laborers deprived of their honest wages? Even death itself will not deliver you from your accusers. That was a quote from the Church Father St. John Chrysostom, cited in the book All Riches Come from Injustice by the ecumenical theologian Stephen D. Morrison, our guest today. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. It is my pleasure to have on the Liberation Theology podcast today, Stephen Morrison, who has recently published the book, All Riches Come from Injustice, the Anti-Mammon Witness of the Early Church and its Anti-Capitalist Relevance. What a book. As soon as I heard about this book, I wanted to pick it up and read it, and so got in touch with Stephen. And it is a huge uh, privilege for us to be able to learn and uh, dialogue uh, with Stephen today. And this show will be a little bit different from other shows in the sense that I wanted to pose a structure for this conversation that would get at some basic objections that people commonly have to liberation theology, to anti-capitalist Christianity, to Christian socialism, because I think that Stephen's book really does get at some of those objections, answers them in a way that is well-founded in the history of the church and in scripture. So we will get to that in a second, but before we get to some of those questions and to the book itself, hello Stephen, it's good to have you, and uh, maybe we can begin with a bit of an introduction if you want to present yourself uh, before we get into the questions. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, David. I really appreciate the invitation and for having me on the show. Um, yeah. Like you said, my name is Stephen Morrison. I've written this book. I'm an author and theologian. I've done, um, this is my 14th book, which is kind of a silly number to have written, but um, I feel called as a writer. And so I've been writing for about 10 years now. I think of myself as kind of an amateur theologian. So I've done most of the study just kind of independently, um, just out of my own passion for theology and and for study. And so, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me and and a good starting point, I, I guess, for there. Awesome. Thank you. So I want to begin with a question that comes up pretty frequently. It's a general question, which is, isn't Christianity about a change of heart and a personal relationship with God? Why turn religion into economics and politics? Right. Yeah. No, this is absolutely a big deal, an important question that comes up a lot. I think it really comes down to we've misapplied all of these compartmentalizations that are very modern and new in terms of history for Christian thought, where we separate all these different disciplines out and we extract certain things and we reject the rest. But actually, if you go back to the ancient Near East, that that was a completely foreign concept. And so the temple in the Judeo temple would have been the center of both the religious and political and economic life for for the people. And so Jesus himself would have had no concept of this idea of a religion that doesn't have anything to do with politics or economics, because it was all intrinsically related to each other. And so this idea that, yeah, we can extract a purely spiritual teaching, either from Jesus or from the Christian tradition, is really just a misappropriation of of some of these modern concepts that we had. And and I think what we've really done, and I think is a disservice to, to thought in general, is we've We've compartmentalized everything in life where everybody specializes in one very, very narrow thing, but doesn't talk to anybody else on the other, you know, so it leads to this kind of disunity. But I think the deeper question really is this idea of who's benefiting from a overly spiritualized Christian faith, a depoliticized Christian faith that has nothing to say to economics. I think that's a really important question to ask of 
what's the question behind the question or, or who's who's behind asking this? Um, because I think there's really no threat to the status quo in a purely spiritualized Christianity that just has to do with your your personal devotion, your escape from the world when you die. It certainly isn't a message that seems to coexist with the reality that Jesus was crucified on a rebel's cross, that he was seen as this leader that potentially led to um, had having some kind of rebellious undertones to the Jesus movement. And so I, I think that's, yeah, that's the question that I would push back to that objection is I think the status quo and the people that benefit from the status quo benefit from turning Christianity into just a pie in the sky religion. Um, and I think there's examples of that historically. I mean, the classic ones, the uh, the way that Christianity was used to subjugate African-American slaves in the South um, and how that led to um, kind of this pacifism, this you have to just accept your lot in life and then in heaven you'll have rewards but never having this relation to um, the actual concrete realities of their existence. And I think if the gospel doesn't have something to do with our daily lives, then I think it's just, it's an, it is an ideology. And then ultimately, it, it, uh, all these critiques of religion can can have some grant, uh, footing to ground on. But I, I think if you actually look at the scriptures and Jesus and, and his teachings, we can't separate any of these things out from one or the other. And so it's not me that's turning it into politics. I think we've turned it back. Uh, and we have to ask who's the we that did that and why why they uh, potentially did that and be a little bit suspicious of why they did that. Absolutely. This is something, the second objection is something that I've heard recently. In fact, that was preached in a homily where there was a reading from Acts that was talking about how the early Christians considered all things to be common and abolished private property and kind of sold their possessions and put them at the feet of the apostles for distribution to the poor. So this was criticized as being maybe the early Christians did this, but that was a utopic practice. And then in the history of the church, we have since abandoned that because it's just too idealistic. So what is the supposition behind this critique? of early Christianity was that human beings are fallen and selfish, and that capitalism is the best economic model given the reality of original sin. So why repeat a failed impossible experiment uh, by advocating for common property today? Yeah, no, that's a definitely a good question. There's a lot, I think, in there. Um, I'll break it down kind of into two parts. The first is really the question about what the early church was doing and how long it lasted and did it fail? Because I think it, it's assumed that it is this thing that failed. Um, Roman Mon, uh, Montero has a very good book on the economic practices of the early church. I cite him in, in um, my book as well that really looks at this question because I think it, it is often just been assumed that either the accounts in Acts 2 and 4 were very, very limited in scope where they didn't last very long. But Montero's book does a good job at kind of breaking down some of that and showing that there was a little bit more uh, substance to what they were trying to do, not only just uh, economically and politically, but really theologically, they were making a, a choice to combat the idolatry of mammon. And I think that's that's an important part behind it. And it, I, I talk about in the book that there's this very fascinating quote from Tertullian that seems to be addressing a slanderous claim that Christian communities had communal wives, which is a was a shocking thing to read that he he felt so necessary to address that this is not what we're doing. But I think it reveals something quite interesting about how the early practices were were seen from from outsiders. And that is that this this emphasis still remained on sharing things in common and having this commonality, not only in a spiritual sense, but but truly in a in a material sense, too. And so I think um, it's very interesting to see that he, he felt necessary to push back on that. And obviously, he was correcting some of the misunderstandings. There were many of these that myths and kind of sub suspicions that existed within the pagan culture against the Christian practices. But it's just very interesting to see how he felt that he it it is, it, I think, reveals something about how the early church uh, at that period, um, this is the second and third century, of course, so it's, it's still quite early, um, but how they were dealing with that. And so, yeah, this model is something that you can even trace through like the monastic communities and stuff. And so it's it's not I think what I'm trying to say with this is to push back against the idea that this is something that just happened once and then disappeared. I think it's a longer tradition within the, the church um, and it's a longer tradition that has solid reasons behind it, not just the pragmatism of the early Jerusalem church, but 
the actual theological claim behind it of this is what it means to practice gospel living today in, in their time. And what then the question is, is how how does that look today? And so, yeah, that but I think the second part to this is then that question of sin and capitalism. And yeah, this is a very common, I think, objection to any kind of left moving Christian dialogue is this idea that, yeah, capitalism is the best model because it original sin with the realities of sin. I think the thing I would say to this is that capitalism as a system, if we're if we're talking about original sin, I don't think we're talking about the same thing when we're saying that it it solves that problem. I think it does the exact opposite by adding fuel to the fire. Let's say if original sin is that we are, you know, greedy, we are inclined to hoard. I don't think creating a system that makes that evil and turns it into a good and makes it the ultimate good for human flourishing and human reality and economic the economic priority, which is how I would uh, understand what capitalism does. I, I don't think that that solves the issue of sin. I think it actually makes it worse. And so I think that argument kind of defeats itself because you're saying that this just is to kind of adopt to sin, but actually it's not just adopting to the reality of sin. It's it's doing the opposite. It's making sin, it's, it's giving it more of a high place. And so ultimately, I think uh, mammon worship, mammon idolatry is the kind of core behind the capitalist system. And so I think there needs to be this this understanding that resisting against that is a resistance to mammon itself as a, as a rival god, as an idolatry. And so, yeah, I think turning turning that evil, turning that tendency into the highest good, uh, you know, that classic phrase, uh, greed is good, uh, be, is so common with capitalism. And so it's, it's. Um, I think it's an interesting argument that people make this, that, oh, we, we can justify this evil because we have evil within us. But I think that is exactly the opposite of kind of how we should respond. And I think there's something to putting barriers in place where human beings can't can't have evil as their highest and, and the thing that directs society um, in the sense where everything under capitalism is secondary to the endless pursuit of accumulation, accumulation, accumulation. Um, as Mark said, that's Moses and the prophets for the capitalists. Uh, that is the the ultimate. That is the goal. And so I think that system props sin up higher. And, I, and I, so I think it's, yeah, it's very much the opposite of the case where I would turn that around and critique capitalism on that very basis. So kind of a convoluted answer, maybe. I, I don't know if that if that uh, tracks, but um, I think there's a couple of misunderstandings there that uh, that I hopefully are able to address in the book. Well, that was super clarifying. And you brought up monastic life. And I wouldn't necessarily say that Jesuit life is monastic life, but we have some things in common with uh, the monastic life in that we are a religious order. And I think mm -hmm. that we do preserve some of this teaching from the early church in the sense that here in Paris, for example, in my community of 14, there's 14 meals per week in that we have a common lunch and a common dinner. And that means that each person in the community makes one meal per week. And so for me, like this semester, it's every Tuesday lunch, I make the meal for the community. And I would have to say this is wonderful. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's wonderful because it means one time per week, I work for a few hours for mm -hmm. the benefit of all. But I also benefit 13 times per week <laughs> mm -hmm. from the work of other people who are sharing in labor in which I benefit. So it almost gets back to recently I've been reading because I have a, a class here in Paris on Henri de Lubac, great uh, Catholic theologian from France from the 20th century. And I was asked to give a presentation on de Lubac's critique of Marx. Mm. And so I was doing some research into some of Marx's writings that are referenced by de Lubac and get into the manuscripts of 1844, where Marx is talking about how under capitalism, the alienation of work, how work under capitalism is alienating someone from themselves, from the entire species of humanity, and also from nature. So these kind of this triple alienation that's happening. And in my Jesuit community life, I would have to say I don't feel any of these three hmm. um, types of alienation in this work that is being done for the community in the mm -hmm. sense that I am making something um, myself. It's coming from my heart, that which I'm making. It doesn't belong to anyone else. At the same time, it belongs to everyone. I'm doing a work for the whole. And also, 
thanks to another facet of our community life where we receive the food that we use for our meals from a local co-op, you know, I feel a certain integration with nature. And so in a microcosmic way, we could say, I think the church in some of these communities, these monastic communities and the Society of Jesus participates in this, has preserved this tradition. And would that that be an inspiration for the Society of Jesus to continue in that direction, but also for all of society to move in that direction? I can I can tell you it's a good life. And I can also tell you that the food is on the table. It's not as if... <laughs> Because mm-hmm. it's not forced, <laughs> it's not happening. Everyone wants to eat. Everyone appreciates everyone's work, and and the work gets done, and it's communally organized. So um, right. I think that your book really speaks to that point. Appreciated and underlined uh, the points in your book where you were talking about monastic life. So the next thing would be an objection that has to do with the early church fathers and mothers in the sense that at least as someone who knows very little about these figures and is learning more about them but um you know certainly is no expert i get the sense that they wrote a lot mm-hmm. and that there were a lot of them i walk into yeah. the library here at the centre sève in paris and there's just shelves and shelves of a complete french translation of the entire works of the church fathers and you think to yourself wow i could never read all of this, though I guess uh, one of the things that Henri de Lubac did when he was sick was he did that when he was recovering from his wounds in World War I. He read through the, the early church fathers. But um, you, get a, you get a sense that it's vast, that it's mm-hmm. varied. So mm-hmm. the question that emerges from that would be, didn't key figures in the early church have a wider array of views on economics? And is there enough consensus among them to claim that their witness gives relatively clear guidelines on religion and economics. Yeah, so this is a this is a limitation of the book that I admit from the beginning and it is something that I think is important to be upfront about because I you know I'm not a patristic scholar. I I haven't been somebody that really does the very important work that a lot of patristic scholars do to ask more of those sort of questions. Um you know, I reference a number of really great scholars that have a little bit more of this nuanced approach. Peter Brown is somebody I reference a lot. He has several very good books on uh wealth in the early church. Um, so does um, Justo Gonzalez. His book Faith and Wealth is uh, is good and, and, and has a good balance to it. And there's there's a number of others that I reference as well. And um, I think yeah, it's a it's a limitation that I own up to. Um, you know, I'm not a patristic scholar. I don't read Greek, don't read Latin. Very limited, I guess, in both. And so all of the different sort of kind of more nuanced approaches are, are something I rest. But but I do own up to as well that I'm intentionally biased because of what I see as a need to do the kind of counterbalancing work where I think we're in the situation. And and I mean, we in the sense of like the evangelical American church, that's kind of a little bit more my context in the United States, but, but in the sense that it's even if I'm, I don't go to those sorts of churches, but even if I don't it, culturally, it's, it's the kind of dominant approach. I think that is an unbalanced situation where we've so gone to the other side of totally unbalancing uh, the conversation around wealth and money and and creating this sort of very conservative ideology wrapped up around how we interpret the mandates of of scripture and and of the early church. And so I push throughout kind of this more radical edge and I try to mine some of the uh, resources that I have available to show that there is also this radical dimension and it's not just one side it's not you know there is there is a little bit of both and so some of the bigger figures that i think people you know have read augustine they've read ambrose they know of these big figures that are massively important for the church the uh, cappadocian fathers the, the various figures that you know were very very consequential for the development of theology in the nicene period and, and all of that were also having this radical kind of economic edge too um and i think that gets overlooked a lot. And so I try to do both things at once where I do try to do the scholarship of placing them in the right context to within some limits. But, you know, I think a lot of the times the actual biography of some of these people speaks volumes to not only just what they taught, but actually how they practiced this this move against mammon. 
um, you know, Augustine's a good example. I mean, such a significant father, especially in the West, very little known about his experiments of, of communal life where, you know, we were just talking about that. And I was thinking of, of his experience where he he went so far saying we can have communal clothing and we need to have everything shared. I mean, that was a very particular experiment. And obviously that has had some influence in uh, the monastic world. But, you know, other people like Ambrose, who gave away a large amount of their wealth, people in the early church like Basil, who did the uh, Basiliad, the um, first hospital uh, and this kind of community where the poor were, their needs were met and, and this kind of experiment. And so I think, you know, on, on one hand, I do own up to the, the lack of nuance that's there, but I think we're in a situation that has no nuance and, and doesn't have this perspective. And I and I wanted to add this perspective and be un, unashamedly biased in that sense of, of I do have an agenda. I am arguing a particular point of view. And I think that these texts there's so many of them that we can't just ignore them, even if, you know, we balance them out with some other fathers that had different opinions about faith and wealth. I think I tried to show that the, we, the, these ideas were still there and they were still present. And so um, it's it's worth taking seriously how how this affected the church. And, and ultimately, I'm trying to do something in terms of arguing for all of this, the relevance for it today um, is kind of the question I'm always thinking through in my head. And, and how can we kind of recalibrate our posture towards uh, faith and wealth. And maybe the church fathers are a helpful resource for that. And I think that they are. But um, there's, you know, that's kind of um, the balancing act that I think I tried to do with the book. And hopefully it comes off as helpful even with those limitations. Um, but I do own up to those limitations for sure. There is more nuance there. There are other fathers um, that have some of the opposite things to say. But I think from what I found in the reading, some of the more significant fathers and earlier texts, Shepherd of Hermas, and, and all of these like really consequential early texts have a big emphasis on on this uh, um, critique of wealth. And so I think paying attention to that is kind of what I'm hoping to do with the book, and hopefully it, it works. So you mentioned a perspective which is focusing on church fathers who are going to be critiquing private property and critiquing wealth. And how do some of the figures that you include in the book accomplish these critiques? And then how are their critiques related to their theology? Yeah. So I think the critique of, so obviously private property is a, a concept that we know more today. It does have roots in Roman law. So I think there's some place to recognize that it has some precedence. But obviously, what we're talking about is something different than what they understood by that. And so I think noticing that difference is important to acknowledge. But at the same time, there was this heavy emphasis, especially on their doctrine of creation, this idea that God created all things in common for the sake of the good of all, this kind of common grace idea that that creation is for the benefit of all people, and that there are enough resources. And they're probably operating within different contexts, of course, when they're saying these things than we are today. But they have this idea of for one person to have an excess means that somebody has as a lack. Um, and so that critique is really rooted in in this um, this sense of inequality, having a interrelation between those who have a superabundance and those who, who do not have enough and placing the guilt of those who are hungry on those who have too much. And we can actually see that in the scriptures itself with Jesus's parable about the uh, man who builds a bigger barn. And Basil makes a, a great sermon about this this um, this parable about all that excess that you've hoarded for yourself. It belongs to those who don't have enough. The extra coat in your closet belongs to the man who doesn't have one. The extra bread in your pantry belongs to the one who's hungry. And so that approach, I think, gets to the root of this ideology that's now become a modern just assumption, especially in the West, that private property is an inalienable right, period. And there's no room to say, yeah, it's totally fine that I have billions and billions while millions will you know, die from poverty, malnourishment this year or, or, or from other uh, poverty related diseases or from curable diseases that we have, you know, medicine for. But it's an issue of distribution on one hand, but it's also deeper behind distribution is the issue that we just don't prioritize it and we don't feel that those people who have this excess actually owe a debt to those people who do not. And so I think that's kind of, again, doing this balancing act because I, I want to be cautious of trying to superimpose any of that onto the church fathers. But I think on the ideological level, they're making some really significant theological moves to emphasize this in a way that critiques this kind of hyper individualism that we've just become accustomed to that says that what's mine is mine and I don't owe anything to anybody, particularly in the West and in the US. That's that seems to be a common thought. 
And so they push back against that with the doctrine of creation, with the doctrine that God created all things for the good of all, that no one would have a lack of need. And then that critique of uh, inequality and how that filters through into their their idea that we actually do owe a debt to our neighbor. And I think that's been lost. This, you know, we talked about loving our neighbor and it becomes kind of this um again, spiritualized concept instead of becoming a material reality where how do I love my neighbor if I have more than them is a question that that some of the church fathers wrestled with. How How do I, how do I actually, do I actually love my neighbor if they're starving and I have more than enough? And so that, yeah, I think that they're not wrestling with the same questions we are today, but they're undercutting some of the ideology behind those questions. So in that sense, I do push them a little bit in a particular direction, um, even if I think they it's it's not inappropriate to do so. Before moving on, perhaps to the next question, I want to go back to the second chapter of your book, which is Can the Rich Be Saved? A direct and bold and important question that you put out there right at the beginning of the book. So how do church fathers relate to this question? What are their answers? And why are they posing this question? I think this was one of the first kind of shocking realizations for me when doing this research was that this was something that was really wrestled with in the early church and, and it was taken seriously. And um, I talk about some of the figures that presented some early responses to it. Uh, I've mentioned Shepherd of Ramos, but also Clement, who had the most systematic treatment of it. And so it is one of those questions that I, I admit from the beginning, it's a little bit of an awkward question because it is, we know that God's powerful to save. We know that salvation is by grace. We, you know, we, we confess all of these things, but I think it gets to the root of some of these questions about justification and the nature of how we then live out our lives. And, and I think the first kind of root, I would say, I, I think about this in the book, the first root behind why they were asking this question is because their their claim that hoarded wealth does come from injustice. The title of the book talks about comes from that for the reason I explained about um, it being this this um, hoarding uh, resources comes at the burden of those who don't have enough. And so by nature, it's 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 rooted in exploitation and injustice and uh, in some ex- extent, a kind of violence, if we could call it a social violence to hoard so much. That's kind of the first main reason of why they're asking this question. And so some some fathers have talked about how almsgiving was so important for for salvation and, and, and all this and, and not necessarily in the sense of, of trying to say that this is now a work that you have to do. And all of this, um, I think behind this question is also kind of a deeper conversation about what does it mean to be saved? Uh, what does it mean to be redeemed by Christ? Does it is it this kind of one and done transaction? I think I make this point kind of briefly in the book, but I think it's an interesting idea of how kind of our imagination has been tainted by capitalism to turn grace into a, another commodity that we just transactionally buy, uh, or we transact. You know, we say a sinner's prayer, and then we've got it, and then we're good, and then we have this object called grace. We have this object called salvation, and it's now ours, but it's always a gift in scripture. It's always a gift in Christian teaching. And so this idea that it's a one and done just transaction, I think is something that um, was foreign to uh, the early church. And this idea of a lifelong transformation is something that's more interesting and more important for them. Um, The Shepherd of Hermas has this vision about uh, the eschatological church. It's this tower vision that I uh, talk about in the book, and it's it's quite a powerful image. The uh, the Hermas sees this uh, or the shepherd sees this um, tower and he sees all these blocks being put in and he sees these circular blocks that don't fit into the church. And there's all these square blocks that are supposed to go in. And he asks what that is. And, and the explanation is that those are the rich. They don't fit because they have these circular edges and they need to be squared off. And so unless they cut away these riches, they they can't take part in the church. And so I think that image is a little bit helpful because it can kind of, it does have this kind of cutting aspect. I mean, uh, Jesus has us, this is a kind of reworking of what Jesus talks about with the rich young ruler, but it also has this idea of it just, we the rich just have, they're misplaced within the community of those who are trying to be transformed by the gospel and trying to be transformed by the message of Jesus. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of interrelated things there. I begin the chapter, I think, my motivation for the chapter was to raise those questions, because um, I, I think it would take another project to 
really dive deeper into that because that's a whole another kind of issue that I think should be addressed of how kind of we talk about salvation in, in the Western church is like this transactional thing. But I think what I really wanted to raise with that is really just to show how seriously they were taking these sorts of questions and to look at some of the different answers. And the typical answer was that, yes, the rich can be saved because like any sinner, but they had this conditionality of it being then saved. It, it meant rejecting all other gods and uh, mammon being another rival god that would need to be rejected and then to uh, give the excess to those who are in need. And I think that's a scriptural witness. I mean, we see that within in the New Testament text, um, but also it's interesting to see how that was then worked out later in some of the, the church fathers. And there's a story I talk about towards the end of that chapter of a of a very rich aristocrat who did the very thing. He renounced his wealth. Historians say maybe he didn't do it quite as dramatically as people say he did, but he's still lifted up as an example of what Christian conversion actually looks like as somebody who gave away uh, the lion's share of their of their resources. And um, and that is lifted up as a, as a uh, positive by uh, many of the figures. And so, yeah, that's, I think, an interesting discovery and one of those things that raises some questions. But um, I think ultimately my, my motivation for kind of starting there is just really to just say this this really was something they took seriously if we if we are to follow christ it means we reject all other lords uh which includes uh mammon and my next question will be related to your chapters eight and nine uh, chapter eight is called socioeconomic analysis and nine on marx and so we might often hear marx was an atheist and a materialist and these starting points are not really compatible with a Christian approach. And further, Marxism is responsible for the deaths of millions of people in the 20th century. So why take Marx seriously, given that his first principles are flawed and his views yielded these mass murders in history? Definitely. I guess there's, again, two questions in there, so I'll kind of break them down. I think the, the first one is... The way I understand and use Marx and, and I, I kind of create this this uh, call to the church actually needs uh, Marx's analysis of capitalism. And the reason I do that is because I recognize in Marx and actually in studying his work, he really was interested in doing science in the sense of critical research into something in critical study, critical analysis. I think there's this perception of Marx as purely an ideological figure. But I think anybody that's read Capital or even just the first volume of Capital can cannot claim that anymore because he was I mean, there's parts of that where he's just going. There's even memes about it online because it's such a common thing where he'll just spend pages and pages talking about how much a linen costs or how much this costs. And he, he's doing really detailed economic analysis. And I think even economists admit that he's a significant figure in terms of presenting theories for economics. And so he's not an ideologue. And I think clarifying that is important to then make the next point, which is that Marx as a scientific thinker, his particular atheism or his particular materialism would then become irrelevant because the cures for diseases, we don't ask the questions about the, the, the beliefs of those scientists. You know, a scientist that cured this or that disease or that worked on this or that vaccine, we want to know if it if the science works, if it's if it's a good research, if it's a critically engaged research in in the materials of, of scientific you know discovery. Um, and I think the same question should be applied for Marx. Economics and political science, it is a science. Uh, there, of course, Marx is actually the person to go to for some sort of ideology critique. And he kind of has, there's a lot of that. I mean, Gromsky, uh, the great um, Italian Marxist, comes up with this idea of hegemony, how capitalism um, reinforces itself. And so this is a kind of this ideology critique is actually rooted in, in Marx to some extent. And so I think it's interesting that he's now painted as the ideologue, but he was actually doing very much the opposite. He was trying to go back to the actual material realities of capitalism and say, we say all of these ideological stuff about what's taking place, but like, what's, let's do the research, let's do the science and see what are the actual causes of these different things that we see economically. And many of his predictions have been very, very accurate for the situation we're in today. I mean, it's quite remarkable to read through some of his predictions about the shape of what capitalism will, will lead to. It's can it's financialization, especially in volume three of capital. He he talks about that increasingly. Um, the financialization of everything, this kind of monopolization. I mean, he was still in the early stages of capitalism, but he was recognizing that it has this natural tendency to lead to monopolization, which we see today where what is it, a dozen or so companies own basically everything that you can buy. They make everything that you can buy. And and that's 
a reality that you know he recognized and he predicted and he not only just predicted it he showed scientifically how we got to that place and, you know he's asking questions about where does value come from where does price come from how do we you know he has all these different models for an economic theory of capitalism but it's ultimately he is upfront about the fact that this is in an attempt to critique capitalism. I mean, he's doing Hegelian moves here with the whole idea of sublation. If anybody's familiar with with Hegelian thought, I mean, he's he's a classic left Hegelian who's who's looking at the concrete conditions, its contradictions, and the need for those contradictions to then be superseded by a new reality. And for him, that was uh, socialism and, and communism. And so I think he, he's a very fascinating figure. And I think he gets this a bad rap because he gets seen as this ideological dogmatist. And I think some of the later Marxists maybe were. I think that's certainly a valid critique that happens within the field. But I think if we recognize that he really was doing this kind of scientific work of how do we understand capitalism as a system, his writings on religion are often misunderstood too. I, I talk about some of the things like the opioid or the opium of the oppressed phrase and how that's taken out of context a lot of the time. The most interesting thing with that that I've, I found from researching is that Marx himself actually took opium. It was a medicine at the time. And so this metaphor that he's using today, we think of it as this drug of like stupor and numbness. But in his time, it was, it was actually medicine. So he, there's a positive undertone to what he was saying about religion. He said that it's also the sigh of the oppressed creature and the heart of a heart society. And so he wasn't interested in critiquing religion as such. I mean, he was an atheist, even though he came from a Jewish background. He was really interested in how religion can be a symptom of the problems of capitalism, but that he wanted to get to the core of the material uh, issues and, and to analyze the economic issues that, that were um, at the time. And so, yeah, that is, I think, how I interpret Marx, I think, you know, we have every reason to accept and um, build upon the foundation of science. And, you know, as Christians, I, I typically run with this idea that I've learned from Friedrich Schleiermacher, who talks about the eternal covenant between faith and science and the fact that faith has no need to contradict science. But science has no need to exclude faith. I think there can be this coexistence where we can learn and benefit from from science. And so I've used Marx's work within that realm. Now, the second part of the question is big rabbit hole that doesn't necessarily need to be uncovered as well. I would just the, the kind of the reversal pushback, I would say, is that, you know, why is it that Marx get, gets all this blame for for issues in the 20th century? But capitalism doesn't get the same questions asked. I mean, Churchill in the uh in the Indian in famines in India, nobody looks at that as a fault of capitalism, but it's certainly a significant human tragedy that happened during that time. Or and it was an intentional one. It was it was if you know the history of it, it, it was something that most historians are say was kind of rooted in this colonial mindset of of oppression, and it led to the deaths of of a lot of people. And so beyond that, even the question of how capitalism is okay with accepting the millions who die every so many years based on food shortages, and, and even though we make enough food for everybody, uh, we make enough resources, we make enough food to feed 10 billion people, but we don't. Because I have you know worked through Marx's theories, I think he shows really well that the reason why people go hungry is because of capitalism. And so, really, the if we're doing the whole death toll conversation, which is always a dubious one in my opinion, because it is always a one-sided conversation, I think we should also look at the other side of the conversation. You know, yes, critique Stalin, yes, critique Soviet Union, absolutely. But on the other side, let's let's look at what capitalism does too, and all of that. And there's also the big question that's assumed here that is that Marx's fault? I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't I don't think it is. But at the, ultimately, he wasn't interested in doing this sort of ideological stuff. He, there is a scientific aspect. There's, of course, the political aspect of, of Marx that's that can't be overlooked. But I know that's a big, big question. And I think raising the point that I do of, of saying that, you know, we need Marx. It's not in the sense that we need any sort of ideological Marx. I think we can. What's what's the phrase that? Uh, chew the meat, spit out the bones. Um, I think there's a lot that can be rejected and should be rejected on the Christian standpoint. Um, there's not. I'm not claiming that there's any sort of synthesis between the two, but I do think that there is something to be said about the fact that if we are interested in critiquing mammon, we cannot uh, overlook the profound witness of Marx against capitalism as one of the most robust critiques of capitalism as a system. Dorothy Zoli, Zoli um, has this phrase where she says, you know, why she's a Marxist. And, and she asked, answers that question in, in one of her autobiographies. And she says, why do we not listen to prophets? If we take seriously Amos and Isaiah and Daniel, why don't we also read Marx and Engels and take seriously their prophetic witness? 
against the systems and powers of this world. And so she interprets him as in this prophetic lens. And I think there's something to that as well of this idea of the church should not be afraid of truth no matter where it comes from. And so that's ultimately kind of where I land on that. And, you know, I think as long as we're able to distinguish that there are some ideological things that we can reject, I think as a tool, as a resource, he's a valuable tool. He's not a, you know, somebody I would put up in any way to replace, you know, um, any, any of the sort of like, no, he's not a normative figure in Christian faith. And I don't think he ever will be, but as a tool and as a resource, resource for the end of, you know, proclaiming the gospel in an economic way, I think he's invaluable. So we've gone through some objections. And I think the thing about uh, objections is that uh, when one responds to an objection, we are kind of meeting the other person where they are and uh, trying to respond to their concerns. But if you were to propose and make the case for on your own terms, why should one have an anti-capitalist uh, Christianity? Mm -hmm. uh, why be, as you describe yourself in the book, uh, a Christian socialist? How would you go about making that case, uh, that argument uh, in your on your own terms? Yeah, well, as I mentioned in the book, um, there's a part two to this book that will will spend hundreds of pages potentially looking at this exact issue um, and to defend socialism more directly. But really, the elevator pitch, the, the short version of it is that I think socialism is a system that tries to prioritize the needs of all over the luxuries of the few, whereas capitalism, it's the very opposite. It try it, it has as its dogma the luxury of the few, the accumulation of capital into fewer and fewer hands at the expense of the needs of the many. And so I think what lies behind that analysis and that that kind of statement is this understanding of capitalism that it is a system that prioritizes accumulation above all else. And that's why I think the Marx conversation is important because that's what he shows really powerfully and really, I think, correctly about how capitalism works as a system is that accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and the prophets. That's that's Marx's phrase. He, that's that's what capitalism does is it, it puts above everything else, above human need, above the health of human beings, the flourishing of human beings at any of the other expense. All knees must bow and every tongue must confess that mammon is Lord. And that's what capitalism is. And I think doing the difficult work of proving that is is another thing that I think is is interesting worth doing. But I think that if that's accepted, then I think there's, you know, there's plenty of data that shows this and the lived experiences of many people have showed that they've lost a lot because of uh, capitalism. Maybe they wouldn't even name it as that. But a system that prioritizes this hyper accumulation and that prioritizes really at the end of the day, eight people that own half of the world's total wealth is absurd. Uh, the fact that that's, that's the world that we live in, but it's a direct result of capitalism. They didn't work harder than everybody else to get that. It's the direct role of the exploitative uh, functions of capitalism as a system. And my pitch for socialism is that it it is the sublation. It is the overcoming of that system by placing above all else. We, we have, uh, Ingalls talks about this in his book, um, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, which is a very good intro if you want a book to read about what, what Marx and Engels were trying to do with socialism. It's a short book too, but he talks about how one of the central contradictions of capitalism is that we have socialized labor, but privatized profits privatized um, accumulation. And so everything is done socially. There's not a single product that you can think of that is made by just one person. And if they are, it's a very, very niche product. But nowadays, everything has passed through multiple hands. I mean, my book is printed by somebody, is boxed up by somebody else at a warehouse, is then put to a carrier. You know, it's like the amount of hands that go into putting something in front of you. We have socialized labor, but all of that work by the community, it then filters down into the profits for one or two people or a board of directors or, or whatever. And so he says that's the central contradiction that is always warring against each other. And that's where they talk about class analysis and, and the proletarian and the bourgeoisie and you know the working class and, and the um, owning class, the, the capitalist class. So socialism is, is a saying that let's say, okay, let's push this socialization of labor to its natural conclusion and say that we we work commonly, let's own commonly too. We work collectively, we should all collectively benefit from the work that we do. Why is it that somebody can work 80 hours a week and still starve and still struggle to put food on their table and but they're working for a boss that has how many dozens of mansions or how many dozens of homes and and, and all of these things. And so I think Socialism, I, I think about it as a system that reverses or, or pushes that contradiction to its conclusion in the way that we want to work, 
you know, we work collectively for the good of all and, and Marx's phrase about from each according to their ability and to each according to their need, I think is a noble goal. Um, how we get there is another question, but I think that that's my ultimate pitch for it. I think that's more humane. I think in a Christian sense, that's more Christ-like that we feed the poor. And ultimately, really, on, on kind of the real personal level, it comes down to that. I I want people to have enough to eat. I want people to have roofs over their head. And so it really comes down to how do we do that effectively? And I think that that's socialism. I think that argument can be made um, effectively. And so that's the pitch. Uh, that was not an elevator pitch. <laughs> We're by far out of the elevator. We're in the coffee shop next door and somebody's looking at their watch saying time up. But anyways, that's that framework is kind of how I come uh, think about it and, and get down to it. Well, a reflection kind of uh, bouncing off what you've just said there would be something that I've noticed between university systems in the United States and university systems in Europe, which would be kind of this corporatizing of the university that is happening in many places in the United States, where in a university environment that is saturated and in a university environment that is very competitive and also with this demographic cliff that is often often being spoken of where people may be having fewer and fewer children. And mm -hmm. so we have a super abundance maybe of universities for a population that may soon be shrinking. Mm -hmm. What this means is that universities have to follow Moses you know, the, and the prophets in that profit making so that they can then reinvest in their own infrastructure and offer a better, more competitive proposition for the consumer, you know, the high school student or the, you know, the student who, who may be considering going to university. And now all of a sudden, what was meant to be <laughs> something that was founded, I think all of us have a desire to uh, maybe study because we want to know something of the truth. We see the truth is highly connected to now money. And I was having the conversation uh, about how, you know, if, if one is doing a search for a president of a university in the United States, it's almost a guarantee that, you know, you really want to have someone who has a strong business background, or maybe they're a lawyer, or, you know, maybe they, they've... <laughs> They've been participating on university administration where they're making decisions kind of that are going to affect this competitiveness of the university. Whereas I was over the summer uh, in Germany and people were saying, oh, you know, our, our university president is the person who's like the most well-published in their field. And, you know, I thought, well, this is just so different. Yeah, perspective. And part of it has to do with the fact that, of course, education is more socialized in Europe compared to the United States. And I think that you you see the effects of that and you see the way that then universities in the United States are co-opted by capitalism and by the military, industrial, pharmaceutical you know, complexes in order right. to produce yeah. certain kinds of knowledge. And just as you say, you know, what should be something that is producing knowledge for the benefit of all is now accumulating knowledge for the sake of a particular class. And this is sad. So totally with you on that. Now I want to move towards a more personal question, which would be if you would be able to share a little bit about how liberation theology, which you mention in your book uh, a few times, how it has, since we're on the Liberation Theology podcast, how it has shaped your life and your thought as a Christian socialist. And I kind of want to prepare you for a question that I'm going to ask after <laughs> that you might have on the back burner that I didn't include in the notes, but would be an interesting one, which would be you've spoken a few times here so far about your context in the evangelical U.S. church. Here I am as a Catholic Jesuit from, well, at least currently in the French context, you know, reading your work and being really inspired by it. But, you know, maybe a, a second question to address later would be, what is the, maybe the ecumenical import also of uh, your work? And uh, how do you see that dimension of your work kind of coming to fruition in this book uh, as a resource for, for all Christians? So, but maybe we can start with uh, the question about liberation theology and then move on later to that ecumenical question. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So liberation theology for me personally, I think it kind of the discovery of liberation theology was such an epic making experience for me. Um, one of the I, I think I would trace several different 
major shifts in my own thinking and my own uh, life and 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 faith and kind of reading liberation theology was definitely one of the significant ones. And it, and it, it, it didn't come after socialism. It was the thing that led me to it, I think, is important. I, I do talk about a little bit my evangelical background. So I did grow up in somewhat of a more conservative, uh, semi-fundamentalist evangelical context, both conservative theologically and um, politically. I grew into this love for theology. I also grew up in a kind of a charismatic background. So sometimes charismatics don't don't have a um, positive view of theology. And so that was initially denied in, in some of the context. But I, I think I always had that interest. And so I stumbled into theology just on my own reading and studied the works of particularly Karl Barth and T.F. Torrance were kind of the first two early figures that were significant. And of course, Barth himself early was a socialist. He was known as the Red Pastor from Safenville. But I didn't know, you know, as much at that time I was interested in doctrine. Um, but I think by them, I then, you know, started to learn about someone called Jürgen Maltmann, um, who's a who's a German theologian who's um, actually had the opportunity to meet this past year, which was amazing. Um, I met him in person. And um, I think he was the one that actually kind of pushed me towards kind of this more political theology. And that's very much what he's doing with the crucified God, the theology of hope. Um, all of these these great works that he's done. Um, I mean, the Theology of Hope really talks about this eschatological orientation, that this hope that we have pushes us towards resistance against the injustices in the world, and it, it causes us to anticipate uh, the reign of God. And so reading their works were very uh, significant for me. And, and like I said, Maltman pushed me towards that direction. And then from there, I I started reading the more, the more classical liberation the theologies, um, I mean, Maltman came a little bit earlier than some of their uh, works, but, you know, James Cone uh, Gutierrez, um, Jose Miranda, I quote several times, I really like his work. There's now kind of a tremendous amount of them that I've come to appreciate from the Latin American liberation context. But now there's also other third world or, or global south theologies that have developed that I, I think are very interesting, um, African theologies, Indonesian context and, and all that stuff. And so for me personally, it's definitely definitely had a very significant impact. I think I, I could summarize the import from from all of this into kind of how I think about what faith even is. And, and I think there's this great phrase that I've been meditating on and thinking through um, that's kind of a twist on An Anselm and Augustine has a version of it. This this idea of, we talk about this idea of faith seeking understanding as kind of a definition of what theology is. And I think there's a way to push that to faith seeking accountability, faith seeking responsibility, but in a, a responsibility that also understands. And so I think there, for me, a theology that also bears responsibility for acting in the world is an important element that I think was missing before. And so for me, that's now kind of a, a burning question that leads a lot of uh, my own theological research and thought. How do we do theology responsibly to the situations of this world? Um, how do we do it in a way that um, leads it to liberation for the least of these, to liberation of the oppressed? Um, that's not just cloud in the sky theology. And so, yeah, for that, for me personally, definitely pushed me towards this more praxis-oriented um, approach to theology, but in a way that still, you know, upholds um, the need to, to really critically think through how we speak of God. I, I think just on the most basic personal level, I mean, I think it, it really brings home some more, you know, I've been a Christian for, for I grew up in a Christian home, so I could say almost all my life, but that's kind of, I, I sometimes a, I, I never know how to characterize it, but, but have been in Christian environments my whole life. And so I think I've gone through these different evolutions. And I feel like this is where I feel now that I've come full circle to this understanding of faith, thanks to liberation theology, I feel like I've truly come to the emphasis on living out the gospel is now kind of become central and this emphasis on actually just being closer to the to what Jesus was doing, I think, than I necessarily was before in the sense of really Jesus not as a tick the box figure, but as a way, uh, as as I Jesus isn't isn't something we just jump into like a place, but actually a pathway. And so I think that's the thing I've learned a lot from liberation theology is what it means to walk that path that leads to liberation, that leads to justice, that it struggles with with those who are oppressed and all of what that entails and um, to do that in a theological way. So yeah, very significant impact on my life for sure.
That's such a beautiful witness. But I want to now then return to that ecumenical question, which would be, I think that, well, for one, I know that your work has done the work of bringing together Christians of different denominations in that it has brought brought us together for this conversation. But uh, broader than that, what might be some implications of your work for Christian unity? Yeah, how might you offer kind of an ecumenical approach to to your work? Yeah, I definitely hope there's a continued ecumenical bend to it. I, I do kind of define myself as a somebody that tries to think ecumenically in theology. I, of course, have a more Protestant background, and the theologians I tend to study and, and work with have more Protestant basis. You know, the people I've mentioned, Bart, Bart Maltman, Torrance, all these were classic Protestants. But I think there's something to praxis being a very good meeting point for ec ecumenic ecumenism. Because, you know, maybe we disagree about what sacrament this is or, or or all the different nuances with theology. But in terms of praxis, we can have point of contact like agreement and and more important than just agreement, um, actual like cooperation and working together and and seeking out those justice, the 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 works to, of justice in a way that kind of transcends those lines that we like to draw between us. And I think sometimes if we get so fixed, I mean, I I do theology, I love theology, but I think sometimes we get fixated on what divides us. But I think what unites us is always going to be bigger and stronger. That's not terribly great vocab, but in significant. They're, they're more substantial things that unite us than than what divide us. And so and I think one of those things is our our shared call to do kingdom work and and to um, do justice work. And I think that will always be a uniting factor. And so I hope, you know, across any sort of denominational or whatever lines uh, on the ecumenical scene, I hope it's a resource for for a variety of Christian or even sometimes non-Christian perspectives, I think can be a valuable thing to say as well. And so, yeah, I I do hope, yeah, the ecumenical aspect is there. So, yeah, I appreciate, you know, having conversations, like you said, with with someone from a Catholic background and or in, or in the Jesuit situation you are. And and um, so, yeah, hopefully there's definitely room for ecumenism. So awesome. No, I could not agree more about that point on the ecumenism of justice. I think that uh, that I feel so strongly about and how I found that the work of justice has brought me together with other Christians, but also does work at that interreligious level too. The love that expresses itself in justice, the love that is God, <laughs> and the love that, that we're all called to in Jesus Christ, there I find so much in common with uh, people who share different creeds, with people who share our Christian beliefs, and with people also who may not profess uh, Christianity or another organized religion, but who have a love for humanity. And uh, there we can we can work together. Yeah. So I am so <laughs> grateful for this conversation. I think this has been a very fruitful interview. Thank you for your work, the work that you have done and that you are doing is so important. I've learned a lot through the book. I would recommend that people get the book. So Maybe in closing, if you have anything that you would like to add, and then also um, how can people best follow you and how can people uh, best uh, get in touch with the book? Yeah, I just want to you know share thanks again and very much appreciate your time and, and the invitation to, to come on this. I, I think it was very fruitful, like you said. And um, yeah, hopefully people will pick up the book. Hopefully they like it. I mean, they can find it on my website digitally if you're not an Amazon person, but it is on Amazon. Um, that's kind of the necessity of, of book publishing in the world today. I do a YouTube channel. I do what was formerly known as Twitter and all of that stuff. You can find me on there. I'm not great at posting stuff that often. Um, my website's... Um, sdmorrison.org um that's where i kind of put some stuff up on there so um but yeah that's that's kind of where you can find me i'm sure it's feasible to find that but yeah hopefully people benefit from the book i think i hope one of the things i didn't maybe is can be the final word is i think i hope the book is still a resource even if there's some points where there's disagreement with some of my conclusions um i hope that even still uh any anybody can pick up the book and learn something and benefit from it um and so that's ultimately my hope and so hopefully yeah there there can it can start be I wrote right about this in the beginning that um, I hope it can be the beginning of a conversation and not the end of one. I don't think I have all the answers to how this works, to what we need to do or 
any of that stuff, but I hope it begins a conversation that I think we very much have to have. And I think it's a conversation that's already been happening, but I hope that we continue to have it more about the relation between, um, you know, the Christian faith, the Christian gospel and uh, wealth and capitalism and all of this. And so I hope it can be that conversation. I'm excited to continue having that with people like yourself and others. And so, yeah, I thank you so much, David, for the invitation, for your time. You're welcome. So once more, the book is All Riches Come From Injustice, the Anti-Mammon Witness of the Early Church and its Anti-Capitalist Relevance. Big thank you to its author, Stephen Morrison, for being with us today. Thanks so much for joining this episode of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Since I'm recording on the anniversary of the assassination of the martyrs of the Central American University on November 16, 1989, let's close with a prayer to that effect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. God of justice, executed by the Roman Empire in the first century. God of justice, executed by the American Empire in the 20th century, pierced by Roman nails, shot by American bullets, who moves prophets to denounce evil and announce visions of righteousness, who invites us to beat swords into plowshares and no longer train for war, who casts down the mighty and lifts up the poor, who lived in our brothers, my Jesuit brothers, Ignacio Amando Joaquin, Ignacio Segundo and Juan Ramon, who lived in our sisters, Selina and Elba, who suffered and died with them, and who will rise with them on the last day, liberate the oppressed, overturn the tables of greed and power, reign on earth as you do in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.